You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. And those of you watching on live stream, it's also good to be with you. Even if you're not physically present with us, you are a part of our community today. As you're getting to the letter James, we have been since the start of the fall and will continue through November unveiling a, a vision and a mission for our future is grace. And we're calling that a missional narrative. And it's actually on the back of your bulletin. You have uh, the full missional narrative that's there. And the centerpiece of this, as we've talked about it over these last few weeks, is this word flourish, which means to thrive or to excel. And, and the biblical understanding of flourishing, this vision that's given to us, is this idea of us learning, growing, and maturing into who we were created to become in Christ. Not only from here and now, but into eternity. And again, this is a sermon series that if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back and listen to get the fullness of this vision, this mission that we've been unveiling to our community together. Today, what we're doing is we're continuing to learn more about what we're calling the how, the guiding principles for how we live out this vision of our future together. Last Sunday, if you weren't with us, we were paying close attention to Jesus and learning that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. That was our first guiding principle. And additionally... We came to appreciate that we as the church honestly and fully extend that welcome by loving without conditions. That was our second guiding principle. Loving without conditions just like Jesus does. Today, we're going to look at two more of those guiding principles that help us to faithfully represent Christ. And you'll notice, if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, that I think they dovetail quite nicely with the spirit of our Reformation heritage. But before we get there, the text that's going to be the backdrop for looking at these two new principles comes out of this letter, this letter from James. And if you haven't read this book ever or in a while, James was the brother of Jesus. He was part of the family, and he also happened to become the leader of the Jerusalem church. And this is a letter that he writes to a wide congregation, uh, to Christians everywhere. And if you've never read it before, it's a very pastoral letter. He's really trying to speak into the practicality of, their, of the, the Christian community. And we're going to come in in chapter 2 in the middle, and you're going to t- notice right away that James is pretty fired up. So if your ears are ready, let's hear the word of the Lord from the letter of James. 14 reads, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to dive into the, this passage in just a second, but first let me tell you about our third guiding principle. Our third guiding principle is this. Being stretched is how we grow. Being stretched is how we grow. How many of you have ever heard the expression or used this one, this is really stretching me, right? This is really stretching me. I mean, what do we mean when we say this job, this class, this project at work, this problem is really stretching me? Well, what we mean is we're being taken out of what we're used to. We're being taken out of what we expect, where we feel safe and at ease, and instead are feeling rather uncertain or unfamiliar. In other words, being stretched is being taken outside of our comfort zones. But being stretched is how we grow. I mean, think of it this way. What happens to a muscle... What happens to a muscle if it is not regularly stretched? It doesn't stay the same, no. Gradually it atrophies. It shrinks. Eventually, inevitably, the muscle becomes weak, brittle, inflexible, and therefore functionally useless. I give you this all as a backdrop because what's happening here in this letter, what James is doing, James is writing to a community of followers of Jesus in the interests of preventing the muscle of their faith from atrophying. And so he stretches that muscle by rather provocatively declaring faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, if you know your history, certainly if you know your Luther, Lutheran history, you might know that Martin Luther famously disliked this letter. He did not like the letter of James because he read James here as asserting we are made right with God by our works rather than by our faith alone. You even hear James say that, and so it's very easy to take that away from what James is saying. And the thing is, if you know anything about the Reformation, that was kind of where the church was going off the rails. And one of the hallmarks, one of the crucial scriptural insights that Martin Luther and others declared is, no, it's not about our works. We are saved by Christ alone, word alone, grace alone, faith alone. I mean, these were the hallmarks of the Reformation. And so for many Protestants, they don't read the letter of James because they feel like James is in contradiction with this scriptural insight. But it's still part of our Bible. And it's part of our Bible because even though Martin Luther or even we may read it that way, James is not in this moment calling us as followers of Jesus to work for the benefit of others instead of placing our faith in Christ. He's not even calling us to work for the benefit of others in addition to placing our faith in Christ. What James is declaring here, what he expects of us as followers of Jesus is to work for the benefit of others as a result of placing our faith in Christ, as the natural, obvious outcome of living like Jesus. And this is a very, very significant insight that James calls out for us because we still to this day tend to divide life and the world into the spiritual and the practical, right? The spiritual and the practical. Matters of faith are private, 
and therefore by extension have no place in terms of what we say or do in public, in the real world. But James is coming out here and stretching us by negating this kind of separation. He's declaring there is no division between our private and our public lives when it comes to faith. What we believe ought to naturally inform how we live, the choices we make, the actions we take, the ways we interact with one another. What James is saying here, another way to hear it, what James is saying here is our actions, what we actually say and do, indicate what we really believe. What or in whom we are placing our faith. Therefore, James insists, any faith in Christ that doesn't lead to works is dead. In other words, it's no faith in Jesus at all. And so that's why if you read the whole of this letter, like I told you, it's very practical because James details throughout this letter how our faith in Christ, following Jesus, ought to inform how we speak, how we listen, how we treat each other, how we engage anger and ambition, how we do business in the workplace, and even in particular how we take care of those who work for us. I I love this letter. Because all of what James writes here, again, is a very practical reminder that being stretched is how we grow. That Jesus embraces us as we are, but Jesus doesn't leave us where we are. I mean, think about it. How does God restore us to his image? Because that's the fundamental problem, right? We created in the image of God, but something has gone wrong. We are not reflecting God the way we should the way we were meant to. How does God restore us to his image? The Lord stretches us. The fact that our Heavenly Father stretches us doesn't mean he views us as human taffy, right? When God stretches us, in other words, he's not making us into somebody we do not want to be. Our Father is actually stretching us to become the person he created us to be. Again, back to this understanding of the gospel, God's desire is that we become our best self, a whole and complete person in Christ. And the word of God, meaning not just the written word, the Bible, though that's part of it, but by the word of God, we also mean the word of God made flesh, the teachings and example of Jesus. The word of God is the gymnasium, if you will, the means by which the muscle of our faith is stretched, it's exercised, and that muscle is stretched by how we live out that word of God the example of Christ, in community together. Not just in the church, but in our neighborhoods. You see, it's in learning about and learning from each other, working together in the midst of our diversity, according to the direction and energy of the Holy Spirit, that our faith grows strong, that our faith becomes flexible, that our faith endures. We need this diversity. We need the diversity that's out there. We need to not just be around people who think and act and speak and have the same experiences that we have because God stretches us through the diversity that we encounter, the ways in which he is present and working in lives that aren't necessarily exactly like ours. Cultural backgrounds, personal experiences, family histories, even neighborhoods that we're a part of. We're stretched by being in community together. And in being in community together where the Lord stretches us by being in the word together through the power of the spirit, our faith grows stronger. It becomes more flexible. It becomes more enduring. But as much as I'm trying to sell you on this, let's be honest. Being stretched by its very nature isn't comfortable. Nobody likes to be stretched. 
Because it takes us once again beyond what's familiar, beyond what comes easy. I mean, being stretched takes effort and energy, attention, focus, practice. Being stretched will lead us into situations or relationships where maybe we don't want to go. Being stretched can place us in a tug of war, right? Between what we should do and what we should not do. Being stretched isn't comfortable because it forces us to make a decision, to move forward. And being stretched, hate to tell you, doesn't get any easier as we get older. But it does become more important. It doesn't get any easier as we get older, but it becomes more important. Because age, contrary to what we often tell ourselves, doesn't equal wisdom. 48 years old. I thought I would be a lot smarter than I am now. When I was younger, I figured, man, when I'm old, I'm really going to know some stuff. And I've learned some things, but I'm not as smart as I thought I was going to be. Age doesn't always equal wisdom. Getting older as a Christian doesn't necessarily mean one is maturing in Christ. And man, we need to hear this in the church because some of us who've been doing this a long time think we've arrived. But getting older doesn't mean one is maturing in Christ. There are many who presume because they're older, they don't have to change. And if I could step aside for a second, when I was younger, that drove me crazy. Man, the world's all about change. We got to keep changing. Come on. And people who are older than me, man, you're just so set in your ways. Why are you so resistant to change? That's, that's what makes us alive. And I'm 48 years old. That's not that old, but I'm getting older and I get it now. I don't like how fast things move. I don't like how much things are changing. I don't like that I can look at both of my kids and they are explaining stuff to me. <laughs> or when I think I've got something like the Facebook, you know, right? They correct me. You know, and I have those little hissy fits, you know. Well, in my day, we didn't have all this stuff. In my day, if you wanted to talk to somebody, you didn't have to text and know emoji cons and what different, you just talked to somebody. That's what you did. I never thought I'd say stuff like that. I never thought I'd sound like that. My dad, by the way, just laughs and laughs and laughs. The reality is growing old is not the same thing as growing up. Age does not preclude being stretched. Man, I wish it did. But age does not preclude being stretched. I mean, honestly, look at our story, man. Abraham was stretched, right? Moses was stretched. Zechariah and Elizabeth were stretched. Old or young. And if you're on the younger side of things, right, that doesn't preclude being stretched either. Joshua was stretched. Elijah was stretched. Jeremiah was stretched. Daniel was stretched. Mary and Joseph were stretched. Get ready for it. Even Jesus was stretched. What? Even Jesus was stretched. I brought this up a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to tell you it again. We're told in the scriptures, Jesus had to grow in wisdom and in stature. We're told in the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus, throughout the course of his life, learned obedience by the things he endured through faith. And if you think about it, it's a way of seeing Jesus that I don't think we often do. Jesus stretched, reaching out to tax collectors and sinners. Jesus stretched, reaching out to Samaritans and centurions. Jesus stretched, reaching out and touching lepers and even the dead. 
In fact, Jesus experienced the biggest stretch anyone has ever done, the stretch of faith that led him to be nailed to the cross. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, Jesus declared, as he was stretched out and died for all the world, for us. My friends, being stretched is how we grow. And the Lord is going to stretch us a bit. We may be stretched in our understanding and practice of prayer. We may be stretched in our reading and studying of the Bible. We may be stretched in our sense of generosity and giving. We may be stretched in terms of our relationships with other people with whom the Lord brings into our line of sight and our ability to reach. We may be stretched in our level of acceptance and compassion. We may be stretched in our political positions and how we vote on issues. We may be stretched in confronting our privileges and our prejudices. We may be stretched in our willingness to forgive, to reach out and love our enemy. Being stretched isn't easy. It isn't comfortable, but it's how we grow, how God moves us, our faith forward, so we can become who we are in Christ. I don't have a lot of years under my belt, but I've, I, God has taught me some things along the way, and if there's one thing that I always come back to, and I come back to it because I like to forget it, is that when God is stretching you, don't pull away. When God is stretching you, don't pull away. You can pull away, but if you think being stretched is uncomfortable, when God is stretching you and you try to pull away, it becomes painful. Painful. Don't pull away when you're being stretched by the Lord. Instead, what I've learned, and I don't always remember it, and I have to come back to it, and when it starts to hurt, this is when I remember. Instead of pulling away when you're being stretched by the Lord, recognize that the Lord is at work in your life, and instead of pulling away, intentionally pull in his direction. Take confidence in knowing that the Holy Spirit is stretching you so that you can hold more of his power. Gain more of his wisdom, more of his character, more of Christ. And so it will be uncomfortable, but it's because God wants to give you more of who he is. To do more of the work that he intends to do in you for the sake of you becoming your best self. The more we're stretched, you see, the stronger and more flexible, once again, our faith will become. The more we're stretched, we see fears evaporate. The more we're stretched, worries that have plagued us get forgotten. The more we're stretched, peace and contentment will deepen. The more we're stretched, yes, our comfort zones will expand and enlarge. The more we're stretched, we will grow in ways we could never have imagined. We will find strength we didn't know we could have. Many of you know this, some of you may not. I was raised Catholic. And long, long ago, when I was raised Catholic, and this is no disrespect on any non-practicing Catholics here or watching, when I was raised Catholic, something that at the time we did not do as Catholics was pray out loud. I mean, you pray out loud for the liturgy, you know? But, you, you know, if someone said, would you pray for me? It was always, yep, I'll pray for you. See ya. We didn't pray out loud for people. When I met my amazing, beautiful Baptist wife... 
And the first time something came up, because we talked about our faith a lot, and she said, let's pray about this. Let's pray right now. I was like, okay, I'll see you later. Let's pr- we'll pray about it. She's like, no, it's like pray right now. <laughs> exactly. What, what, what? And so I, you go ahead. You pray. There's <laughs> a lot more to that story, but what I will tell you is this. <laughs> yeah, you know her, I guess, right? Okay. For the longest time, Praying out loud for someone else terrified me. It intimidated me. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know when to stop. I didn't know what would, if I said something wrong. It was like, I, you think of like the Grand Canyon. It was like trying to jump over the Grand Canyon as far as I was concerned. <laughs> My whole point in bringing this up is, look at where I am now. <laughs> Hello. If you were to go on a time machine back to Chris then and said, hey, buddy, this whole praying thing with this girl you really, really like, that's going to be nothing. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to pray it for other people out loud is going to be your job. I think I might have fallen dead right there. (laughs) Being stretched is how we grow. And it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't in that one moment with Beth that I, she prayed out loud and then I prayed out loud and was like, oh, it was a gradual process. And yet, look at where I am. It's a little thing. And if God can do something little like that, as he says in his word, what other big things, what can he do in us? Because again, I want you to be encouraged when you hear this. Be encouraged. Your capacity to stretch is a lot more than you may realize. God knows that capacity. You think you do, but God knows that capacity. And the Lord is going to stretch us beyond ourselves so that we become, once again, who we were always meant to be. If I wasn't willing to be stretched, and I did fight it, but if I literally dug in, I wouldn't be here. There's no way. God knows our capacity, and he's going to stretch us beyond ourselves because that growth, that becoming our best selves, it all happens in the stretch. It all happens at the stretch. If we stop stretching, we stop growing. We stop growing. And if we're growing in Christ... If we are a witness to Jesus, there will be evidence. And that's our fourth guiding principle. Witnesses provide evidence. Witnesses provide evidence. James, through this letter, teaches us. Talking about what we believe and demonstrating our beliefs are two different things. Our faith in Christ, once again, should have an obvious impact on the way we live. Good works don't earn our salvation from Jesus. Good works reflect our trust in Christ, that we are actually following and relying on Jesus. In other words, witnesses provide evidence. That word witness, it's a funny one. It appears more than 100 times in the scriptures. 100 times, more than 100 times. And the most general definition I can give you, it kind of moves around a bit, but the most general definition for the word witness scripturally is to give testimony, to share from what you know, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced. And as children of God, what you need to catch is being a witness is more than a role or a task to perform. Being a witness, you might say, is our shared calling together. And why do I say that? Because we were created to be witnesses in that as human beings, we were created in the image of God. We exist to reflect God's glory to reflect, to give testimony, to witness to the Lord's goodness, his creativity, his truth, and his love. 
The problem is because of our brokenness due to sin, because of our rejection of God, because of our rebellion against God, we don't always accurately represent our creator to each other. Part of why Jesus came, and we've hit this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. Part of why Jesus came was to reflect to us what it looks like to truly be human. To fully and rightly reflect the image of God in whom we were created. We point to Christ for two reasons. We point to Christ in order to witness to both the glory of God come down. Jesus is fully God. We point to the glory of God come down to us and for us when we look at Christ. But we also point to Christ because he is the glory of God reflected through our humanity perfectly. That's what it looks like to be human. And the first disciples of Jesus became witnesses to this gospel by telling others about Jesus' extraordinary sayings and deeds which they had seen and heard. They pointed to the reality of the kingdom of God through their firsthand testimony in Jesus' willing death on the cross, later resurrection from the dead, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit through Pentecost. And their witness to Christ came with the evidence of their changed lives. It came with the evidence of the rise of a new and different kind of community, the church, the body of Christ. It came with the evidence also of their power to bring healing and reconciliation in the world and ultimately lead others to Jesus. Like them, like them, we are also called to be witnesses to the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Like them, we are also called to give testimony to the kingdom of God among us. The love, grace, and truth of God are real and available for everyone today and onward into eternity. Now, I know some of us will say, but we weren't there. We didn't hear. We didn't see what those first followers of Jesus did. And that's true enough. But we have this word. God's word revealed and handed down to us through them. We possess the same Holy Spirit who guided and empowered and transformed their lives. We are blessed to experience the handiwork of our Lord's creation on display all around us in nature and through the disciplines of the sciences. We have access, beloved. We have access if we dare to have eyes to see and ears to hear the presence of the risen and living Christ moving and working in lives, in communities, and in movements all around us. Because you see, Christianity is not a school of ideas. Christianity is not a collection of beautiful temples and lovely art. Christianity is the witness of a people who follow and engage a risen Lord and Savior, Jesus. Christianity is the witness of a people who, in following Jesus, are living differently, living as God intended, flourishing. And witnesses provide evidence. Again, as James puts it, hear this. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Normally when a person falls unconscious, even though his or her heart stops beating or he or she stops breathing, that person may still be alive. This is because there's still enough oxygen in the blood to sustain life for about four minutes. And this is why we do CPR. This is why people are trained. CPR is done in the hope that person will not die. 
However, the only way the one doing CPR can tell if that person is still alive is to feel for a pulse or to look for the breath from the person's mouth. If after about 10 to 15 minutes of time there is still no pulse, no breath, there is no point in continuing. That person can safely be pronounced dead. Because these are what, we, what are called the pulse and the breath, the vital signs, right? The vital signs, the only way we can tell apart from special instruments whether there is life or not. This is the analogy that James is making for us here. A living faith, a living faith will always produce good works over time. That is how we can tell that the faith is living. It gives evidence of being alive. If there is no evidence of life, no fruit produced over a long period of time, even though that person may claim to be a Christian, it becomes doubtful he or she ever had a living faith. The vital signs of being in a saving relationship with Christ. You see, we testify, one way or the other, we testify to what we experience. But being a witness is not an isolated testimony. When we talk about this idea of witnesses give evidence and we talk about following Christ, it's not an isolated testimony. It's not like in a courtroom, right? When we think about being a witness in a court of law, that's reduced. You're a witness for a single event on a specific date and time. That's not what it means to be a witness for Christ. Yet many Christians functionally operate this way. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. I've always believed. That's my witness. I've grown up in a Christian home. I've always believed. Dude, is Jesus a friend to the family? Or is Jesus your inheritance? There's a difference. It's great that you grew up in a Christian home. It's great that you've always believed. But if Jesus is your inheritance, you got more to say. Or, or you, you could say, oh, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but here's my conversion experience. Here's when the Lord came into my life. And that's a start, but I'm still going to say to you, if you're just pointing back to a conversion experience five days ago, 50 years ago, my question for you is, is Jesus an old flame? Or are you still in love with Jesus? There's a difference. Witnesses provide evidence, but being a witness for Jesus is not an isolated testimony. It's an ongoing one. Because this is because being a witness, scripturally, is tied to being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. You see, as we follow Jesus, our testimony, our perspective, our witness changes. The essentials do not change. Nothing changes about who Jesus is. Nothing changes about what Jesus has done for us. But the nuances, the details, our comprehension, our understanding of the gospel widens. Our appreciation for the reality of God's kingdom among us deepens. Our sensitivity heightens to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We stack up lessons that we've continued to learn. We are continuing to learn from Jesus along the way. Being a witness for Christ is an ongoing testimony. You know, a big part, it's not the only part, but a big part of the reason the people around us, our parents, our children, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, a big part of the reason the people around us aren't interested in Jesus. They don't want to hear about the gospel. 
They roll their eyes about any talk of the kingdom, God's reign in this world. A big part of the reason that people aren't interested, they don't want to hear, or they roll their eyes is because they aren't seeing the truth of it, the evidence of the life of Jesus in our lives. I'm going to ask you a hard question, and you're going to be chewing on it for the rest of today, if not the rest of this week. Does your life prove that Jesus is alive? Does your life prove that Jesus is alive? When people look at you, when they watch you, when they observe you, when they spend time with you, as they're in relationship with you, does the way you live verify the resurrection? That there's more to this life than death. That there's more to this life than here and now. Not less, but more. Is Jesus changing who you are? Because that's the invitation. That's the promise of the gospel. We've hit this many, many times over many, many years together. The gospel is not your get out of jail free. Here's your salvation card when you die. It's not your sins have been forgiven, so don't sweat it until that moment comes when you breathe your last. It is those things, but it is so much more. It is Jesus saying, I have come into your life to change it, to stretch you, to let you, to make you become who you were created to be, to set you free into your best and fullest self. Is Jesus changing you? Because here's the thing, if Jesus is reshaping our lives, if he's doing what he promises, what he offers us, if Jesus is reshaping our lives, reshaping how we think, reshaping how we speak, reshaping how we act, then the evidence of a change, a transformed life, ought to be apparent to others. Because the truest witness to Jesus is a life lived in faithful response to Christ. On the other hand, unlived truth is a false gospel. Unlived truth is a false gospel. And go further. If we're experiencing, I mean, if we're here and we're praising the Lord, if we're here because, yes, it is true, if we are experiencing the touch of Jesus, if we are experiencing the marvelous riches of God's grace, then not only do we have a, should it be apparent, we also have a responsibility to share that grace, to become effective witnesses of the goodness of God to those around us who are desperate for a sign of hope. Part of the evidence of a witness comes by way of speaking, verbal testimony. And yet so many of us will say, how many of you say this? I've said it. I've said it. How many of us say, well, I'm not much of a speaker. You know, I'm just really, I'm not really much of a speaker. I tend to keep things to myself. It's a personality thing. It's just my, you know, it's my anagram. It's my anagram. It's, you know, it's what, who I am. That's how I am. I'm wired. And when I'm going to push back, and I know I've said this before, because it's true, think about this. No matter what you say, how, if you respond that way, wherever you're at on this spectrum, the reality is, whoever you are, we tell others what we are excited about. If you're excited about something, you will tell someone else. In fact, you have to tell someone else. It kills you when you want to tell someone else and they're not interested. We do not have to be pushed when we're excited to tell someone. Introvert, extrovert, polished talker, or awkward conversationalist, we introduce stuff, others to stuff we believe in. If you believe in something, you are going to tell somebody about it. 
right? Oh my gosh, you got to try this. This is the best. This will change your life. Oh, well, I would never go back. This is it, man. You don't, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you're a polished talker, like I said, or an awkward conversationalist, you're compelled. You like have to share it because it would be wrong not to, right? So really, and it's hard being stretched here. The question is not, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Not, are you a polished talker? Or are you kind of awkward with conversation? The question is, are you excited about your relationship with Jesus? Are you excited about it? Is it the center of everything that's going on in your life right now? Do you believe Jesus is who you claim him to be? Because the stuff we believe in, we introduce other people to. Do you believe Jesus is who you claim him to be? Because, beloved, witnesses provide evidence, and evidence begins by speaking up. We cannot rightly claim to follow Christ if we're not telling anybody about Christ. You know this. I'm just, I'm pricking a, I'm poking the bear in a familiar spot, right? But the thing is, speaking up, how important that is, speaking up is just the beginning of our evidence as witnesses for Christ. Speaking up matters, but people hear this. People around us need a visible gospel. We must speak of Christ, but we must also embody the life of Jesus in our relationships with one another. The reformation of our lives must be visible. The reformation must be televised through our actions. Faith in Christ Love for our neighbor. You can't just talk about it. You gotta live it. To truly witness to the life of Christ, we have to see and engage Jesus already at work in the lives of others. Hear that. Because oftentimes I don't hear Jesus, I don't see Jesus, I've never talked to Jesus. I, you know what, I just kind of, I just show up, but I've never heard or seen Jesus. And more often than not, you're looking for Jesus within. And you're probably not going to see Jesus within because you can't get out of your own way. Because you're going to be stuck in, is that me? Is that God? Is that me? Is that God? Is I, maybe I want to see it, I don't know. But here's the thing, shift your focus. If you start looking into the lives of the people that God puts right in front of you, I will guarantee you, you will see Jesus Christ. You will see Jesus moving and working, and it will blow your mind and your heart wide open. To truly witness to the life of Christ, we have to be willing to see and engage Jesus already at work in the lives of others. That sounds great, but hear it. That, the appearance of that kind of evidence isn't going to come by inviting and expecting people to come to church. Hear that. We're not going to see that kind of evidence by inviting and expecting people to sit in these pews. That kind of evidence, seeing Jesus already at work in the lives of others, doesn't come by asking them to come to us. That kind of evidence can only come by going to them. If you want to stop giving people excuses to not follow Jesus, if we want to do that, then we need to start bringing the church, being the church for them, building relationships beyond our campus, beyond Sunday, being willing to sit at other people's tables. 
in their house, in their space, it may not be the way we would do it. It may not be as clean or as nice as we would do it. But being willing to sit in the space of other people, to sit at that, their table. But it also goes even further than that. If we want to see Jesus at work in the lives of others, it doesn't start by inviting others to come here. It starts by inviting others to sit at our tables, to come into our homes, into the sanctity of our house, our space, to open up our lives. I'm going to say something to you that you know, but yet at the same time, we still, I don't know if it, if it has broken through. Jesus never told, would never told us, never told us to invite anyone to come to church. Jesus never told us to invite anyone to come to church. Jesus called us to go. Not to come, but to go. Jesus called us to go. And in fact, the word for church means to go. It means those who go. Jesus calls us to go, and instead of saying, come bring people to church, Jesus calls us to go and be the evidence. We're the evidence that he is alive, that he alone is worth following. Hear that. Many of you have invited people to church, and they don't want to come on Sunday morning, and you're convinced if they just come on Sunday and they see what we're all about, if they see all this, we're gonna, and they see how loving we are, and how, oh my gosh, this is going to bring them, they're going to come to Christ. I got a news for you. If they're not seeing Jesus at first in you, then they're not coming here. But if they see Jesus, who he is in your life, if they see Jesus expanding your capacity, all of a sudden you're a person who's not angry all the time. You're a person who's at peace. You're a person who doesn't fly off the handle. You're a person who, who steps outside of your comfort zone, embraces people that otherwise they would be like, wow, I didn't think that you liked those kind of people. If you all of a sudden expand your, let God expand your capacity for generosity, for compassion, for love, if the, all that fruit of the Spirit that we talk about suddenly starts to ripen in your life, that is going to be compelling. That is going to be attractive. That is going to be undeniable. And I guarantee you, once they taste the fruit of Christ in your life, getting here will not be so hard. Getting here will not be so hard. Jesus himself said, by all this, by this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you invite them to church. No. <laughs> By this, all people will know, you follow me, if you love one another. Everyone's welcome. Love without conditions. Man, those two things we talked about last week are values embodied and taught to us by Jesus that will definitely stretch us if we let them. But they also will be the means by which we grow. And the more that we're willing to have the boundaries of our acceptance and our love for others expanded, the more evidence our lives will provide that Jesus is the way, is the truth, and is the life we were meant for. Amen.